All right, welcome to WTF Web3, where we separate the crypto utility from the bullshit. Today's a great show. We're really talking about how Web3 can get physical in the real world. You hear things like D-PIN, TIP-IN, MeetSpace, DY, just a ton of these acronyms. I have no idea what the hell they mean. I'm sure you are just as confused as me. And so today we got two guys on the show that really know their stuff about wireless networks and things like that. And they're going to explain it all to us. So before that, Sean, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Hey, Chris. Hey, Max. Hey, Nick. My name is Sean Carey. I'm the co-founder and CTO of BlockJoy. I've been doing about 25 years of engineering and technology. Looking forward to uh, hearing what these guys have to say today. Yeah, and I'm Chris Bruce. I am a five-time venture-backed founder. I'm founder and CEO of a Web3 infrastructure company called BlockJoy. Previously, I was at Helium. I've been in the space for quite some time and really excited to see where it goes. We have some great guests that are going to go into wireless networks and Web3 and physical um, but first, I think it's important to get an introduction. Nick, Max, uh, do one of you guys want to kick it off and introduce yourself, please? Yeah, I'll take it. So my name is Nick Hawks. I found Helium in geez, August of 2020, uh, deployed not a bunch of them, but put them up in some pretty wild places on mountaintops, started writing this blog over at gristleking.com, uh, and the blog got picked up on Reddit. I ended up helping a couple thousand people, uh, maybe maybe more, understand what was going on with Helium and how to deploy it well. And then as... I saw all of these other companies start to pop up and follow Helium's lead. I thought it would be pretty cool to take the experience and knowledge that I had from kind of watching Helium grow and, and helping it um, and apply it to these to these new projects and started a partnership with Max. So that's kind of the, the very short version. Yep. And I'm, I'm Max Gold on the other half of that partnership with Nick. Started out my career working for one of the uh, largest tax consulting firms in the world. Ended up working as the director of tax for an oil and gas drilling company as they were going through bankruptcy, which oddly enough, prepared me for the crypto world very well, uh, the ups and downs of oil and gas. Uh, started a company setting up Helium Hotspots, just you know, started as a hobby, kind of figured out early on with that oil and gas background that the best way to go through the ups and downs of a crypto cycle is to outlay as little capital as possible. So I essentially ran a services company that would go through and, and place hotspots in some of the highest value locations. Uh, I did that by partnering with fixed wireless ISPs and use some of the helium incentives to figure out which cities were the best, and which were the best areas to put them. Uh, fast forward a year and a half later, I'm working with Nick and we're working with different companies on how to roll out Web3 as they move into the physical world using, you know, crowdsourcing and a token. Well, I got to tell you, Sean and I are super excited to have you both on the show today. I think uh, you're going to give us a lot of valuable information, especially it sounds like around wireless networks. I think the most important thing we like to ask every guest, what is Web3? What does it mean to you? Yeah, so Web3, it's, you know, it's anything tied to a blockchain to me where, you know, Web1, you, you go and you get the information from the internet. Web2, you can kind of interact with other people through the internet. Web3, it's you're creating the thing that is happening on the internet. And it's all tied together through blockchain. That could be, you know, decentralized finance. It could be sending of cryptocurrencies. It could be now building um, assets in the physical world. But anything that kind of uses the blockchain component to have the users of the network also contributing to that network is, is Web3 is to me. And how about you, Nick? What's your take on Web3? Uh, it's funny because it gets a bunch of different definitions. I'm not sure there's an official one, but I, I look at it as really it's a change in ownership and responsibility as we all interact with the web. It's it's just getting you closer and removing the middleman from kind of what is going on and allowing you to capture the value that you generate. That's probably as, as close as I come 
to kind of figure out some kind of definition for it. Tell us a story about really your entry into the Web3 crypto wireless area. Uh, there's something about a crashed paraglider or a crashed hang glider that that I, that I was told about. Yep. Yeah, that's that's how I got in. So August of 2020, uh, I'm a paraglider as a, as a hobbyist. There's only about 5,000 paragliders in the US and one of them meant, uh, went missing at 14,000 feet over the skies of Nevada. He was trying to set a personal record. So he's flying some pretty gnarly air, going pretty big distance paragliders. I think the record is 250 miles, 280 miles in a day. Uh, you hike up a mountain, you un unpack your paraglider, you pull it up over your head into the wind, launch off the mountain, and you spend the day searching for thermals that take you up. And then when you get to the top of the thermal, you go on glide until you find another one. So this guy had topped out a thermal, uh, was on glide, and that was the last we saw of him. His GPS kind of point was like, all right, this happened at 14,000 feet at, at this location. And because he was a well-known guy in the paragliding world, and because the paragliding world was pretty small, a massive search effort was spun up to find him. There were hunters, hikers, bikers, dirt bikes, uh, planes. I flew up in a small plane with a buddy, helicopters, drones, you name it. It was out there looking for him. In the paragliding world, there's a ton of engineers. And so we were getting imagery from NASA. We were getting imagery from satellites. That was super refreshed from Google coming overhead. Uh, still took us 30 days to find him. He was dead when he hit the ground, so it didn't matter to him, but uh, it mattered a lot to the rest of the community. And it really made us ask ourselves, he had what we thought was the gold standard for being found in the continental US. He had a GPS and a cell phone. And we thought you couldn't be lost in the US if you had those two things, but turns out you can. On the flight up there and on the way back, uh, as well as you know myself, as well as the rest of the paragliding world, was just kind of wondering what else is out there? What is the, the fancy way of saying it? What's the tertiary geolocation option? What's the third way to be found after GPS and phone? I uh, went looking around and found this thing called LoRa. There was a project, still exists, called MeshTastic that was built by a paraglider uh, to allow you to, to build a mesh network as you flew, communicating over LoRa. And then as I was looking around more, buddy, there's a couple of us looking at the same thing. So I was thinking uh, called Helium. There's a guy down the street with a Helium hotspot. And I think, I think those things are making like three grand a month at the time. And the DIY program opened basically as I made my entry into Helium. And so I ended up getting a couple alpha codes with a buddy. Um, I'd you know, put one up, send a picture over to Travis uh, Teague, who is running the DIY program. He'd send me another alpha code because he's like, yeah, what you're doing is rad. We want more of that. And that was how I got into Helium. So kind of understanding it really accidentally. I didn't have any really technical ability before that. I really got walked through by the community on how to set these things up and how to split out the packet forwarder and the miner and how to make it so you could have something way off grid with a really low power draw, you know, specifically from, from that DIY world. But that helped me understand what was going on and ultimately helped a lot of other people understand how the whole thing worked as well. So that was kind of my my entry point into it. And I'll, I'll turn it over to Max by saying that I kind of stopped deploying, like I never looked at deploying a huge fleet of miners. Um, I was always looking for like, not just high quality spots, but spots that would get me like way out into the mountains and be super fun to do. Max, on the other hand, uh, had, a, had a really different approach that I think is pretty cool. So Max, walk us through it. Yeah. So I actually kind of got into helium by accident. I was getting a dog with my now ex-girlfriend. And as a joke, I was like, oh, let's get the doggy coins. You know, that was... And that that did the pump that it did. And I was, you know, making fun of one of my friends at uh, the rock climbing gym. Rock climbing piece isn't that important to this, but, you know, Nick over here talking about his power gliding, I have to sound a little more exciting. But uh, my friend was like, oh, yeah, you know, that's that's funny. You made all this money on, on Dogecoin, but uh, have you heard about helium? I just ordered one of those helium miners. Like, no, what is that? So I look into it. I, I read about IoT. I happen to live 300 feet in the air. Um, in a high rise, I'm, I'm next to a major league baseball stadium. You know, for me, it was, I was like, oh, wow, there's all these devices that are going to be using helium. Little did I know that none of them were at the time. This will be a great spot to set this up. 
And like, I remember I was going through like calling Xfinity about like, what do I have to do to get unlimited data? Because I'm going to have all this traffic coming through my hotspot because of this baseball stadium. But, you know, hotspot comes, I, I set it up, saw how much it was earning, thought it was cool. Then I like looked at kind of what everyone else was doing around the network and realized like, oh, wow, I'm earning way more than everyone else. Set up another hotspot at my parents' house. They live in Tampa and, you know, they're another high rise. And that one was, I think, the highest earning hotspot in the state of Florida. And I was like, huh, clearly I'm doing something right here. Obviously it's height, but it can't be just height because if you look in like San Francisco, New York, that's not going on. That's when I started diving deeper into like hip 15 and hip 17 and figuring out like, okay, why am I being rewarded so much? And how do I replicate this and, and keep going and scale this up? And essentially what happened was, you know, I realized Houston and Tampa, the way they're set up on the, you know, H3 hex map, it's, it's somewhat lucky that those two cities happen to have their population center set up in different hexes. So they were able to earn a lot for a long time before they started getting scaled down. I then tried to look into like, okay, how do I find these other cities that are like this? Um, one of them was Louisville, Kentucky. I happened to know someone who was asking for advice about Helium. They said, hey, I have this friend in Louisville. He owns a wireless ISP. He has a bunch of towers. Do you think that would be a good spot to put hotspots? I'm like, um, yes. In fact, let me talk to your friend. I'll get him some hotspots and we'll, and we'll put them up. From there, I, I started to realize like, okay, you could have all these different algorithms to figure out like which hex is the best place to put things, where you're going to earn the best. So the real key metric for figuring out like the perfect density for helium was whether or not there was a AAA baseball team in that city. That was like at the time, this is now early 2021. That was the metric that like really was the easiest one to look at. So essentially what I did was I, I you know, would call up different ISPs in different cities that have AAA baseball teams ask them if they've heard of Helium. They would shut the door, like immediately hang up. They didn't want to do it. Ended up partnering with the guy who owned the ISP up in Kentucky, had him starting to call people. The call with them ended up just being like, hey, did you hear about the new Toronto gear? You hear about this? Like, ah, oh, BuySell is coming out with this new thing. Oh, by the way, you know, after like 20 minutes of me sitting on the phone board, it's like, oh, by the way, why did you call? It's like, oh yeah, we're doing this Helium thing. And we think like some of your spots would be good. They're like, ah, oh, all right. I've had two or three people call me about it before. It seems like a scam, but like, yeah, we could try it. So that was kind of our end to the other ISPs. And, and from there, we just, just kept getting more and more hotspots from other people and putting them up and putting them in the locations, ran everything off of revenue share. And, you know, here we are. You ended up with the highest performing uh, fleet in Helium. I think that's pretty reasonable to say. So the, the trick, the secret sauce is sports. The thread yeah. is running strong between you two. Yeah, much much to my chagrin, professional sports actually helped Max quite a bit. I'm not a not a sports guy at all. <laughs> so we've been hearing a lot of acronyms thrown around when we talk about Web3 in the physical world. We've heard IoT, we've heard Helium, which is not an, an acronym per se. We've heard elsewhere about DPIN, TIPIN, DY, POPW. It seems like an endless group of acronyms. Can you help describe what all these mean and, and what the, the meat space is and all this stuff? And, you know, explain it to us like we're five-year-olds, please. Sure. Yeah. So, look, all, all these different acronyms are just marketing firms or people kind of fighting with each other for the bragging rights to name this space. And this space is really at the intersection of the real world and blockchain. So any project that is is acting at the intersection of the real world, sometimes called the meat space, if you want to be a cool guy. And blockchain is a one of these projects. So Tippin is Token Incentivized Physical Infrastructure Networks, named by Mike Zajko or Lattice. 
Uh, Deepin is decentralized physical infrastructure networks. I think that's the Masari guys. There's Proof Physical Work. There's EdgeFi. There's all these different people kind of fighting for the right to name it, but it's all the same thing. It's all what Helium broke ground on, which is, hey, we can incentivize the deployment of hardware of real things in the real world using a blockchain. And that's that's what it boils down to. It's it's a lot more simple than all the acronyms make it seem. Yeah, so I, th I think Helium, I've often cited as a great example of Web3, especially in the physical world, because Helium is really a way for people that have resources to put up these hotspots and create a wireless network to be incentivized. And people that need low-cost data transfer for things like IoT devices, which are you know, scooters, bikes, dog finders, trackers, you know, leak detection, things like this is a way for them to actually live on a ubiquitous wireless network anywhere. So they don't have to create a hub or a hotspot of yep. their own. They can just join. And being that it's IoT or an internet of things type of network, it's, it's usually designed for low power, low data rate. And a lot of companies traditionally have been using LTE, like very small bandwidth, but LTE modems. And so the, the devices are pretty big or they use LoRa, which is another type of network that essentially uses uh, low power and it requires each person or each company to build their own network. And so I think what's a great example here is unlike telcos and wireless networks of today, where a big company goes, raises a bunch of capital, deploys a bunch of antennas and builds a network out across the, the world, essentially. Helium came about and said, hey, we will let you deploy these hotspots. You will earn tokens for proof of coverage, which for uh, it's a way to incentivize the creation of the network. Will allow you to incentivize the rollout and deployment of the network. And then over time, the, the incentives will shift from a deployment centric incentive to a consumption based incentive around data usage and so as more and more devices hop on the network and they need to get bandwidth they basically pay and so what the beauty of this is is that it allows a consumer and somebody with a resource to actually interact with each other and to build this network without any middle person being involved unlike the telcos which you know, you have T-Mobile, you have Verizon, you have all AT&T, you have all these different types of networks and, you know, don't necessarily interact well with each other. And so that, I think, in a nutshell, is what we've been talking about so far. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. That's pretty reasonable. I think there's, you know, it gets deeply technical really quickly, but it's, it's important to keep it high level and say, look, this is, this is a way to remove some of the middleman um, piece and to interact with with the, you know, with kind of your neighbor and people around with strangers in ways that we all build something together. Uh, without having to know each other or really kind of, you know, want the, exactly the same thing for each of us is that we want something that is useful for the network. So what are some of the interesting projects out there, Max? Uh, you know, from, from a network perspective, what do you like? And and also from a project that uh, can potentially be utilizing the network, what, 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 what interests you? From a just strictly LoRaWAN perspective, right now there seems to be a lot of work being done on the tracker side. I, I don't know that that's particularly the best use case for it. For example, if I ship something via UPS or any other shipper, there's a network of scanners that every time a package goes through a sorting center or a, you know, I, I, let's say I drop it off um, and I'll just use a, a consumer case. Um, I drop off my package at the UPS store. The guy scans it in. The driver comes with the truck. He picks it up. He scans it in. It goes in the truck. The truck is locked. Truck goes to a sorting center, scanned in. 
leaves the sorting center scanned in. So whenever your package is missing, they know where it is, but they don't know where exactly it is. It's probably lost in a sorting center somewhere. And by adding LoRaWAN, like I don't really see how that really helps that case. If it's like my keys or my wallet, I'm never going anywhere that I'm not going to be able to use my cell phone. And therefore, an Apple AirTag will also work perfectly fine. Someone else's phone will connect to it. I actually right now have a phone that I left in a rental car that I see driving around Tampa all day because whoever's driving it right now, they, they keep connecting to my phone and it tells me the location. Uh, but you know, somehow budget can't seem to find the phone. I think a, a better use for it is if you sell like appliances, for example, you're not going to expect your customer to connect their refrigerator to the internet. And there's tons of valuable data that you can get from that fridge as the manufacturer. You can, you can get better information about when certain things start to break down in the field so that you can, you can have better data for how you do your warranties. You can schedule maintenance with the customer before they even know there's something going wrong. When the technician goes out to the site, they'll know exactly what's wrong before they even get there. And you can even you know, upcharge people by saying, hey, we see that your thing is broken. Why don't you get this fixed now? And you know, here's, here's what it'll cost. And it you know, makes it much easier for a manufacturer of some appliance to get information on their customers and, and, and their equipment out in the field. I think that's a much better use because you now don't have to worry about that person connecting to the internet. Because think about a multifamily home. If the first resident connects it to the internet, as soon as someone moves out and that Wi-Fi password changes, it's no longer connected to the internet. So all the smart integration um, that you can add into either a fridge or a, a washing machine, dryer, all that goes out the window as soon as the thing is no longer plugged into the internet. What about you, Nick? Tell us, uh, tell us what, what what you like, what your aspirations are for this industry. Sure. Let me make sure I'm understanding. It. Are you are you asking about spe- like helium specific stuff, or are you asking about all or of the different the, projects, um, specific networks um, in the D D pin D Y uh, type systems? So it can it can be any system, it can be okay. any network, and it can be any projects. Uh, we're just we want to know what you're interested in. Um, so I'll kind of go the opposite route instead of diving in specifically to helium. Cause, and I think the appliance uh, example is a super good one is there's a, a ton of projects in the space. Some of them are good. Some of them are, are super new. Some of them seem really promising and some are just like, ah, I don't know about that one. So uh, full disclosure, Max and I run this consultancy that we've got uh, two clients and a big part of the reason we have gotten with these two clients is that they are both doing something we think has a chance, a really good chance of, of doing well. Um, and that is GeoNet. So that's the GNSS positioning. Well, most of us would just call it GPS positioning down to centimeter accuracy. Uh, very similar thing to Helium as far as it gets rolled out. You put a station on your house, you get rewarded in tokens. That station can be used by anyone who wants to use GeoNet service and you get centimeter accuracy. And you might ask in that case, like, oh, why do I need a centimeter? I got GPS. I can drive my car around. Like I don't get lost going from whatever my house to the coffee shop. Uh, but there's a couple of really cool things you can do on the consumer side. A lot more of them are on the business side, but the consumer side is uh, almost Max's example. There is we've all kind of lost our phone at some point. And I know just the other night, my wife left her phone somewhere and was like, where is it? And all we could do is like, well, it's in the house somewhere. It's on the property. It's on our like little 3,000 square foot lot somewhere, but you don't know exactly where it is. So that's kind of the, the really easy un- to understand uh, consumer use case. And then you start thinking about smart agriculture. You start thinking about where things need to be from the from the surveying side. And while most of us don't deal with that on a daily basis, um, it's, a, it's a critical part of the nation's infrastructure. So making sure that people know exactly where some crop row is or something is uh, down to these, these highly accurate levels is, is pretty important. Um, and even, I think Max and I were talking about this earlier, 
if you're mapping something over on Hive Mapper, which is another project, you want to know if you're on the highway or you're on the feeder road. And in GPS, sometimes if you've ever driven around Texas, I was driving around Austin a couple of years ago. It's like, I don't think the GPS knows exactly where I am. So that's one project is GeoNet. Another one is uh, Anode Labs React, the React network. And that is just putting energy monitors on homes. I think they're going to move into batteries as well. Same kind of thing. You put an energy monitor on your home. You get to see the energy usage you know, on your phone using an app. So pretty immediate value to you. And then the information from that can, at your discretion, be sent back to and sold to whoever React kind of manages to sell it. So those are kind of two really interesting projects for both Max and I. Um, on a professional and also personal level, we're both kind of geeks in that way. But there's a bunch of others. Cool. Hive Mapper, yeah, I can Demo. go through the list if that's useful. But yeah, Spexy's one that's launching pretty soon. They're they're going to do a, a network of drones that you essentially either buy a drone or bring your own drone. You have this software on your phone. I guess it would actually just be an app, and you hit fly. The drone flies around in a predetermined pattern to cover whatever hexagon it wants to cover and then you get credit for covering that and you get rewarded for doing that with a with a token problem they're trying to fix there is they have they currently run a marketplace where you can say all right i want drone footage of this area but it doesn't exist yet and by having it already ready to go since people kind of want the instant gratitude of like i want to see what it looks like over here uh here's my money let me see the images now like it allows you to have that imagery in, in real time. Um, and, and that's typically something that's important with any of these projects is, you know, if you can generate revenue today, you don't really need a token. An example of that would be Uber. Like you can crowdsource Uber without giving people tokens because at the end of the day, everyone just wants dollars, um, whether it's today or later, they, they all convert their tokens into dollars at some point. So by driving around for Uber, for example, the Uber driver wouldn't want the token. They'd rather the dollar. So you don't need a token. Where you need a token is when you are pre-revenue or have very low revenue compared to where you'll be at some point in the future. And then this allows a way to give people a liquid asset that if they would like to sell it, they can sell it to speculators. And if not, they can hold on to it and hope that it accrues value with the network. Let's say with the Uber example, if there was a token and the price is pretty fixed, you know, so so nobody's speculating, do you think that having a token based without the middleman, the drivers would make more money because, you know, for my take, Uber is taking a cut and they're taking a cut on both sides actually, right? Oftentimes for like Uber Eats, they usually charge the business and then, you know, then they get a delivery fee off of the, the consumers. And we're seeing a, a really bad problem in this, the States right now with DoorDash and stuff where if you don't tip, nobody's going to pick up your order. Do you think that removing that person out in the middle would increase the revenue for the people providing the resource on the network? No, because I think there is a people still want to have that person that they can call when they have a problem. Um, if my Uber drive, if my Uber Eats delivery driver takes a bite out of my hamburger before he delivers it, I'd like to call and yell at someone and then have them send someone else to send me the food. Um, when I get in an Uber, you know, I don't know everything that goes into their background check. But I assume it's sufficient enough that the guy driving me isn't going to murder me. And if he does, they're going to find him really quickly because they're going to know who's driving that car. Everything is, is safe in that way. So I, I think some of these things where it's providing a service in the real world, like I don't know that blockchain is really the best fit. And, you know, some of these margins that these companies take, even though they're, they're big margins, I just I, I think people are going to think that they're worth it. 
and that the blockchain version of it, because you remove that human element of who you can talk to if something goes wrong, I, I think that's highly important in those situations. I guess a hypothetical statement for you, Max. Um, I turn on my phone and it works. Why, in your opinion, do we need these types of technologies to work in the decentralized world also? You know, the instant on concepts. I mean, why does that need to work in decentralized? So in the, the phone example, I, I don't think you as the consumer really care who's providing that coverage. Like whether it's uh, AT&T providing that coverage or they're using a neutral host like Boingo or they're using Helium as a neutral host. Like you don't care. All you care is that it works. Where blockchain kind of comes in is because it's able to strip away a lot of these costs of not having to have pay for a tower to pay for, you know, professionals to upkeep the equipment, pay for backhaul to a, a tower that's, you know, a one time pretty expensive cost to run wires and everything. All that is stripped away. So it's able to be a cheaper option. But again, it's a cheaper option that me as the consumer doesn't even know exists. Like if T-Mobile wants on the back end, spend less for data that I'm using and they can average down their costs per gigabyte, that's great for them. Maybe they pass that savings along to me because it's a very competitive business. Maybe they don't. I don't know. But I, as a consumer, yeah, I, I just really don't care. I think it's an interesting Interesting question. And it's really asking people kind of how much they care about their interaction with the world. And there's some of us who are fascinated by everything and want to know how every little last piece of, of the, the world works. And some folks just want the things to work and don't don't worry about it. So really fascinated by the idea that while Helium was the first, that wireless networks may not be the absolute best use case of this intersection of, of blockchain in the real world, of, of tipping or whatever it is. There may be other things that are coming. And if we look in history, that, that's true. It's not like the very first car that ever came off the lot is still the car that's running today. Um, there's been many different, different transformations of the vehicle as you go forward. And now you can have a badass Ducati or an airplane or whatever it is. And all of that came out of you know some really basic re-understandings and re-imaginings of the world. And so I think the great service that Helium has done is said, hey, here's a new way to think about the world. Now it's up to the rest of the world to go out and, and think about different applications for that. So their IoT thing may work really well. Their their 5G kind of cell phone uh, thing, I'm, I'm not as convinced it's going to work well. But then there's also the part where we have to be you know very honest with ourselves and say, look, we don't know all of the different machinations that are going on. We don't have a full and complete understanding of the world. No one does. That's a, an, an omnipotency that uh, is not human. And so there are likely to be things out there that I don't understand that are going to impact this. And maybe it ends up working really well. But I think this is just the first kind of step of exploration. And, and that's really the exciting thing is to be exposed to that exploration piece. Yeah, there are some uses that actually have have happened now that because I personally am setting up stuff, and again, because I'm across the street from Minimate Park where the Astros play, they, they played in the World Series this past year. Um, the Astros probably in a 40,000 seat stadium sold an additional 10,000 standing room only tickets. So, you know, the, the amount of data throughput that is normally experienced by the towers in the area was so congested that, you know, on Verizon on my phone, I wasn't able to send a text message. However, I had a separate phone that connected through some of the DY networks and I had perfect like 100 megabit per second speed. I was able to stream videos. Incredible. The stuff I was able to do. Now, it's just a proof of concept. And, you know, if more people were using the networks, then that congestion problem, not only does that, do those DY network experience the congestion, you know, they're a worse product than what, you know, a, a Verizon tower is doing. So it'll experience congestion even faster. But being able to have that kind of semi-private LTE access at the game, and I had other 
people who I, you know, worked on both helium and pollen with who also had eSIMs who are also able to use it. So like the fact that there were a few of us that were able to like use the, use our phones as if no one else was at the game and everyone else couldn't send out a text message. Like that was something that was really cool to me. You made a really interesting point about the eSIM. And one of the things that when I, when I look at Verizon is I, you know, I flip it down and it's Verizon Wi-Fi. You're already using my network, right? It's, it's, you know, why don't we have devices like that where, you know, where the world can actually share mobile and, and, and actually this information could be used by, by groups of people. And it's not just Verizon, you know, charging you a hundred dollars a month for a telephone that you're act- that's actually using your backhaul. So I, I think there's some validity, but you know, with what Nick said, there, there's absolutely going to be, uh, you know, a lot of work and it's going to be a massive undertaking. I, and I think years of, you know, years of effort to make something like the, the mobile payoff. Yeah. I think what's interesting when you're talking about some of these uh, wireless networks, the one thing that the physical world has that maybe the internet and DeFi and some of these other things don't have is that they have physical hardware. And when I was growing up, you know, I was always at Radio Shack back when that thing existed. I hacked on stuff all the time. And, you know, when cable first came out, you know, everybody was figuring out ways to steal cable. What are some of the challenges that we see with hardware on a decentralized network? I mean, we're assuming that the hardware isn't tampered with, that people aren't cheating. But, you know, what are the challenges that we're facing today? And, you know, what are some of the things being done to overcome some of those challenges? Sure. I'll, Max, I'll set that up for you and then pass it over to your uh, to your expertise. So I think that the big thing is that uh, when you start to incentivize people with something they want, they will start to do whatever it is they can to get as much as possible of, of that thing that they want. And in the, the regular world, there are laws to prevent that. You know, there's laws saying like, hey, you can't just go into the bank and jump over the counter and take a bunch of money. But in this Web3 world, this kind of new world, there aren't the same kind of laws. And so you've got um, folks who are building incentives that uh, that may be perverted, may be flawed, may have some mistake that is easily exploitable. And that's something that Max has been really good about. You, know, you heard earlier in the show, he talked about kind of the, the good side of that, where you could do all the crazy math to figure out the different hex sizes and what your absolute perfect density is. Or you can be like Max and say, actually, what you really need is just a AAA baseball team. So that's kind of a, a good way of thinking about how incentives should work. But then there are the less good ways. And those obviously incentivize kind of bad decisions. Uh, but thinking through incentives and, and the impact they have on a network is is really what Max kind of specialized in. So Max, I'll turn that same question over over to you. Right. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, everyone, if there's a, a chance to cheat, people are going to cheat. And, you know, there's there's different variations of cheating, obviously. But the the simple answer from a 30,000 foot view where you don't actually do any work um, is to say, well, you just have to make sure that the incentives are aligned perfectly with the network. And as long as everyone is aligned, people will do what's best. Now, obviously, that's way easier said than done. One, one thing that typically happens is incentive structures are set up and then they're just kind of left alone. They're like, this idea probably scales. And then by the time it's time to go back and look at how people are creating, um, perverting the incentives a bit, no one wants to go back and do the work to actually fix it. Because you know the original time, it, it took a ton of work and a ton of effort. Uh, often free labor was used to do it. And it, it's difficult to do that because now as people become stakeholders, they they understand like, okay, I use these inefficiencies in the um, incentives to create some sort of a fleet doing, you know, whatever. I'm in no hurry to change that because that's how I'm making more money than everyone else, you know, since it's a zero sum game. And since I'm the best at it, why would I vote for a thing that now hurts me? So, you know, that's where you kind of get some of the ideas of like centralization. Is is that the job of a centralized entity to kind of figure out how do we incentivize everyone? Do you maybe come up with a board of director type 
position where people are like, okay, we're going to align incentives and we have no skin in the game in terms of like making, earning more because, you know, we just want this network to do best and we don't care. You know, everyone hits a point where the incremental value of added tokens is, is small compared to whatever you have in your current wallet. So creating incentives that are aligned is the easiest way to stop people and the most sustainable way to stop people. Because then the other option is you start looking at, okay, these people are bad actors. How do we figure out who's a bad actor? Okay, let's ban these people. But you're always going to have collateral damage in that situation. And the person that you're hurting in that situation that is the collateral damage, that person is still an investor in your network. Then you have this fine line of like, okay, do we want to stop the cheating or do we want to, how many people do we want to hurt that are kind of innocent along the way? So there's, there's plenty of different ways that you can go down this and probably not for the, this one podcast episode. So yeah, let's talk about flowers. Pollen, they, uh, you know, they've gotten a lot of bad press recently. A lot of, they've pissed a lot of users off. I was wondering if, uh, Nick, we'll start with you, if you could Give us your take on the recent changes that that Pollen has made to the way that they're operating their business and how you think it affects the users. And tell us if you love it or hate it. There's there's a, a couple of interesting aspects to the Pollen side is that there's a big part of that community that did buy hardware um, and deployed it and spent a ton of time and, and kind of blood and treasure putting it out there. And there's a smaller part that, that didn't. Pollen had sent me down a couple of radios. Another guy in the network just out of the goodness of his heart was like, hey, I think this thing is pretty cool. This was, and I don't know what it was. Maybe spring of last year is like, hey, I'm going to send you a couple of radios. I just want you to set them up. I saw what you did with Helium. I want the, you know, I want people to be able to understand Pollen in the same way. And so I didn't have a, a ton of exposure. When they made this change, I was like, well, it doesn't look good, but it doesn't impact me uh, particularly. But it does impact some people. And that's Max is kind of much closer to understanding what's going on. He's been much more in those groups and walking people through what what the options are um, and what happened and and kind of the really the meltdown in Pollen. And I think it's the, the best thing about Pollen, it's a great example of where if you don't get incentives and you're messaging right, there is a basically a mortal peril to your to your project. So Max, you're probably better at, at kind of talking folks through what happened um, and yeah, what maybe can be done about it, if anything. Yes. I mean, high level, it started with bad incentives. There, there was an incentive to essentially the, the best way to mine a token is to reduce your costs in dollars per token mined. So it, it became very simple to realize that by buying a mapper for pollen, that was the best way to earn more money. Now you need to have other people buy radios or you yourself have radios in the area before you can do that. But you know, generally speaking, the, the mappers kind of earn the most. And then it was actually semi-flipped where like the smallest, lowest power radios earn mo- more per dollar. And then up as you got to the more expensive, the less per dollar you could earn per radio. So Originally, what was happening was that the mappers weren't great hardware. They had an issue where if they would ever lose connection, it would take a really long time, like five minutes for you to get a connection again and start validating coverage. If you had to validate coverage every day, that became a huge nuisance. And you know, a lot of people also thought like, okay, as long as I can get all my earnings for my radios that are up, like that's all I really care about. So why don't I put a second one in just so I double up and make sure that I'm, I'm hitting all the hexes that need to be hit. There was supposed to be a, a kind of black box algorithm in the back to figure out if you were doing that, but they did want to allow for kind of a community growth type thing where people could go around mapping together. No one really knew what the threshold was. And then there was a community call in probably September, October, where Anthony Lewandowski, the CEO and founder said, yeah, as long as you're not in the same 
Hex is another mapper for more than 40% of the day, um, then you'll be fine. You won't be hit by this. So then, I mean, everyone kind of figured out at that point, all I have to do is have my mapper on in different hexes in different areas throughout the day. And then I get around that. So, I mean, it got to the point where people were having 40, 50 of these mappers in their car and then going around, like hiding mappers in trees, power cycling them. Because, you know, if you're mapping two to three hours a day, uh, you just need four hours of it being somewhere else to get around this kind of uh, anti-gaming thing. Now, it inherently wasn't that big of a problem that people were gaming the mappers because it's only 30% of the earnings. However, come October, when there was another drop, the drop did very poorly because people were essentially saying, why would I spend any money on radios when I can just earn more PCN by buying mappers? Now, that was at that point, you see the pollen network stops growing. It was, you know, it had sold out every drop within five to 10 minutes. And now we're looking at four months of no growth. Even if, you know, you give away equity to people for doing whatever, like they're very early employees, but they have no impact on how the company does going forward, those people still hold their equity. Um, Pollen was, or PCN was kind of treated as a pseudo equity, but by kind of devaluing the token the way they did, it was essentially like, hey, thanks for kind of proving this concept and getting this thing off the ground. Everything you've done, uh, that actually is no value anymore. So that's what kind of caused everyone to be so upset was... You took a token that could potentially be worth, you know, let's say the pollen network is valued at a billion dollars. Uh, now that token's worth a dollar and then pivoted to a new uh, system where the token is only worth 10 cents at its max. So it's essentially a DPEG stable coin at this point. You couldn't even use um, the network for, or the, the coin to operate anything on the network. You still have to pay at least 75% of your data bill in fiat. So like, it essentially killed it enough to where it had no value, but to where they can say, well, it has some value. But like, you know, no one gets into a crypto project for not having any upside. And when for you kill the value. upside, yeah, it's yeah. there's way better bets you can make. Um, and if you have zero upside, there's, you know, it's, you're essentially killing it. And, and they knew what they were doing and they they just wanted to move on to their other thing. It's understandable yeah. why the community is so. It, so it goes, back to the, it goes back to the beginning question, Chris, is like, what is Web3? Um, and it's this kind of responsibility and understanding of of how you interact with the world. And I think we're just exploring that. And I think on, on the pollen side, it's pretty clear that they just made a mistake. I don't think they're evil people. And so we have to look at all these projects and be very clear about kind of what our exposure is as we get into them. Uh, be very clear about kind of what the intent of the project is. And then when they make a mistake, make sure that we call it out so that we all learn from it, but then then move on and allow like we know that at the beginning of any ecosystem, you're going to have a bunch of different attempts at dominating that ecosystem. And, and pretty clearly, not all of those attempts, almost by definition, not almost by definition, all of those attempts will not will not work. And so we're just seeing the, the kind of first um, failed attempt to, to run one of these things. So yeah, I think it's it's it hurts if you're in it, so, but uh, part of the deal. Do you think they'll survive it? It's tough to say. One of the things that Max and I kind of look at a bunch is how, how are the... Um, leadership team how how is the core team behaving and not you know not in the sense of like are they are they partying or not or are they you know stopping at a stop sign but like what what are the uh, publicly available indicators of kind of what they're doing they don't seem to be that motivated to make giant changes which leads me to believe that they probably have something else that they're very sure of um that they feel like they can discard the community in, in the way that they have now that's just my guess that's just kind of i think one of the more likely things is they have another contract 
um, on the back end. And they're like, okay, well, this community of a thousand radios uh, is valuable, but it's not as valuable as this other contract. And, and we're going to have to move on to that. And I think we're going to see a, a bunch of that um, until we sort out kind of what what the expectations are going into a project, uh, both on the kind of founder project side, as well as on the participant side. Yeah, I think in my opinion, this seems like a pretty poor fit for Web3 if a single entity can just come and completely change the rules, right? Yeah. They could completely come in and devalue the token. At least by my definition of Web3, I would think that there is some decentralized nature to it. There is some kind of governance, at least by token holders, better yet on chain. You know, this reminds me of things that we historically have seen that have been bad, which is like the SBF thing. Anything that's centralized seems to cause problems. And, you know, when I look at Web3, I'm looking at it's like, how do we remove the middleman from those types of things? And how do we put the power back into the community? And it it seems surely in this case that community had absolutely zero power. And, you know, they're doing something now with the DAO. And, um, you know, the way that that structure doesn't look like, you know, that the DAO has very much power, you know, gets the data only from the API that the centralized entity controls. So, yeah, um, and I could be wrong about that. But I, I think that's how I understand it. Yeah. And so, so to me, it's just like how how do you get into a project? And you know, if if it's centralized, it can it can rug pull on you. They can change the rules. They can do everything. They can just co- totally upend the community. And you know, the community is what's making the capital investment, especially in these physical things. I mean, you talked about towers being expensive and having to run cables, but I mean, somebody is absorbing some of that cost in this. And what what we're doing essentially is, you know, the the people that are providing the resource are absorbing the cost with the hopes that. They're going to make, you know, either through speculation, which is probably not the most ideal, but through speculation or through continued consumption, they're going to make their capital investment back. Yeah. I don't know, Chris. So think about this is one thing that, I mean, Max and I kick back and forth a lot. I think all of us do that are thinking in this world is that there are very few worlds where like the extremes are the best options. And so there's this idea that, you know, decentralization is super important. And I think what at least what Max and I are seeing is that there's got to be this balance between decentralization and centralization. And you got to find out kind of what it is for a project, but it's probably not more than, let's say, um, 25% off of kind of, you know, center, maybe, maybe 70%, maybe like whatever it is. It's, it's, there's something where we have to be really careful of saying, Hey, centralization is bad because centralization allows you to move really quickly. And in the beginning, that was the, uh, the, the kind of selling point for pollen is that they're centralized. They're moving super fast. They're able to do things that helium couldn't do because it was decentralized. So I think we're seeing in a really cool way, kind of run up, maybe not cool for everybody, but in a really clear way laid out before us, what happens if you're too decentralized, which is maybe where, where helium is, although uh, debatable uh, versus too centralized, which is certainly where pollen is and saying, okay, well, how do we learn from this? How do we apply this to the next projects and then make sure that they move forward in the right way. But I think that centralization in, in the early stages of project might actually be the only way to do it. Um, and then figure out like at, at what speed do you diffuse out ownership, ability, responsibility as a project grows. Yeah, I mean, I, I think just, there's some previous case. I mean, Bitcoin is pretty much decentralized. Yep. Ethereum, pretty much decentralized. Polkadot, pretty much decentralized. You get to some of these newer chains, uh, not quite so so decentralized. But anyways, I guess I guess we'll see. But I, I think at the end of the day, if it's my choice, it's like, I, I don't want to invest my time and energy in something where somebody has control. You know, uh, otherwise, they should be giving out equity. I mean, like you said, like, mm. why even have a token? Why shouldn't they just be giving equity in the company ownership? But the token creates like, 
almost like a, a class of stock that is completely useless, has no voting rights, has no rights whatsoever. And, you know, at any time the company can burn it. And so to, to me, it's just kind of like just a more classy rug pull in a way. Nick told me to be nice. No, I mean, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. Like it was, they, they, they use the token as a pseudo equity and then they're like, no, 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 we're not a crypto company. And it, it, it was just a way to kind of devalue that extra class or that new class of investment that they no longer had any use for. So, you know, why? I think it's going to be hard for them, in my opinion, to raise more money when, you know, the question of like, well, here were your other group of investors. Like you could have done a, they were they raised $5 million at the end of the day in, in uh, equipment. Like they could have done a reg CF if they needed $5 million. Like, how do we know that you're not going to fuck us later if you just fuck these other people, right? Like I wish them the best of luck. I wouldn't work with them again. But I'm sure, you know, there's plenty of people right now who hold a bunch of PCN who, you know, you always have the people with the sunk cost fallacy where they're going to try to put in more money and more effort to make their initial investment worth more. And I'm not going to be a part of it. But, you know, best of luck to everyone who is. Isn't that, isn't that like playing slots or, you know, like on a slot machine, you, lo- you lose your money and you just keep stuffing some coins in there and you know, hopefully it'll pay off. Sooner or later, right? it's going to hit. <laughs> yeah, it'll, sooner or later, somebody's getting paid, right? So, uh, so will P- my big question in my mind is, will PCN actually pay for the hardware that these people invested in? Like, what what is going to incentivize their hardware and pay it off for the for the experiment? Or are they just like, oh, you know, you, you bought this thing and and that's it? It's not going to work. You know, you're not getting anything for it. So, that's what I wonder is if at least if the, I hope the users can can get some of the the investment back and in what they did. And that's. I, they're going to get, yeah. get as much money back as I'm going to get back from my FTX account. Zero. You know, and that's, I think this is a, this is one of the things, again, I think about Web3. This is why I think the decentralization is so important is so that, you know, maybe centralization is great, but you can't, you know, you can't just bow to the goodwill of some entity that has their own yep. profit motives. And those, like you said, I think over and over, the incentives have to be aligned. And when it's centralized, it's too easy to misalign those incentives to the entity's favor. And so I think this is kind of why I I think that, you know, we here at, you know, WTF Web3 are really focused on trying to separate the utility from the bullshit because there's a lot of bullshit in crypto. Right. And and even if you create a a DAO with perfect incentives right now um, and you perfectly incentivize the right amount of tokens going to the right people for doing the best thing, if Paul and Opco who is actually selling the data on your behalf still will only accept PCN at a certain price as store credit. You can incentivize people to do stuff for no money and for internet points, right? Like no one's still going to, they're like, well, we can create better multipliers and all these other things for good locations. But if you're giving me just points that are worthless to anyone, like no one would buy it. No one, it doesn't accrue any value. And you're just giving me points like I, I'm still not going to do it, even if I can get the most points. And I think that's one piece from this new DAO idea that's come out is like, how do we still solve the problem of PCN not having any value anymore? Yeah, I think I think the the answer, in my opinion, is if the central entity creates an enterprise layer, which actually does the on and off ramp to PCN. Mm. So everything is still maintained in PCN. The data is being paid for in PCN. The Rewards are being paid out in PCN and the enterprise customers are paying fiat to that centralized entity to, you know, basically onboard and offboard that fiat currency into the system. 
and provide all the tools that give them the, you know, the accounting that they need for their books, which are usually in fiat and don't want to take on any kind of liability or risk with, with uh, crypto and the system works. And what's nice is if it is decentralized, other companies could come in and do the same thing. They could negotiate their own contracts with other uh, companies and be the same kind of business. And then again, now you kind of open it up. So anybody with a resource could come and build on it and anybody that consumes it pays for it. Yeah, no, that 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 works. I mean, it's just not mm-hmm. the, the current architecture of how it's set up. And even if you did institute a buyback and burn mechanism, for example, uh, there's nothing saying that that mechanism won't go away tomorrow when there's a better solution out there for any of these centralized entities. Yeah. And part of that's going to be a problem for all of the um, decentralized CBRS because the radios have to be registered to someone and it's on these centralized entities to be the running the, the, the SaaS account. So, you know, I, I don't know that you could ever strip that away from a, a CBRS network. Well, with that, it sounds like Web3 definitely has its challenges, especially in the physical world. The case about being decentralized or centralized to grow the networks faster. Lots of good things to think about and ponder on. But thank you for listening to this show. Next week, we'll have DSO on and we'll continue to really push the boundaries and understand the crypto utility from the bullshit. Thank you.